Welcome to the Muslim, everybody. This is Dr. Joe Armstrong. Today, we are continuing our case study. This started with episode 191. Then we did another one in episode 193. You need to listen to those so you have any sense of what's going on for today's episode. We're continuing our journey with this feedlot that has an issue with BRD. Quick recap on what's going on here. Got a call from a farmer having problems with dairy beef calves at 30 days on feed, they start to go downhill, only a small percentage respond to treatment, and they appear to be respiratory cases. We're looking at about 20% mortality overall from placement to finish. Calves get there at 10 weeks old, they make a couple moves, and then they end up in a finishing barn. So last time we talked about this case, we were really talking about only phone, text, email communication at this point, and I was excited to get to the farm. We talked a lot about the potential issues at the growing operation that happen prior to the animals getting to this feed lot. We're going to leave that alone today, and we'll, we'll maybe touch on it briefly, but for the most part, today is focused on what I actually saw when I was at this feed lot and the recommendations I made that we can control at this feed lot to help these animals. Now, what do I do when I show up to a farm? Well, the first thing I'm doing when I arrive is I'm driving down the driveways and I'm looking at everything, just the overall state of things. And what I see determines basically my initial impression of the farm and how clean they keep things, how organized they are. Now that all has to be filtered through the lens of what time of year it is, the weather, those kind of things, because sometimes it's messy and there's nothing you can do about that when it comes to mud and everything else. But generally, I like to look at the general state of things and how organized and clean the farm is overall. It gives me a little bit of insight into the operators and the owners of the farm and how on top of things they stay. In this case, driving down the driveway, it's immaculate. The yard, facilities, equipment, buildings, everything's super clean and obviously well taken care of. So immediately, without even having met the people I'm super confident in their ability as a farmer. So I think previously we had talked about this being a dairy cross beef operation, and there are some animals that are beef on dairy crosses. But what we're also seeing is that most of this feedlot is occupied by 100% Holstein steers. So again, the importance of getting to a farm, seeing with your own eyes, there was miscommunication somewhere where I was under the impression that most of this farm was dairy crossed with beef when in reality the majority of the animals are just dairy beef or 100% Holsteins that are intended for beef. So on this farm knowing it's well organized and knowing that it's clean and well taken care of right off the bat I'm coming into this situation thinking that most of my recommendations are going to be of the nitpicky variety. I'm looking at a well-run operation and we're trying to streamline things and optimize things rather than being able to find this really low-hanging fruit that, you know, is just basic management, like keep your animals clean and dry. That's a sound rule that doesn't always happen, but knowing this place is clean, well-taken care of, I'm expecting to also see clean, well-taken care of animals, which was exactly the case. We have clean, well-taken care of animals. Everyone's got food. Everyone's got water. 
clean, dry bedding. All the animals are super clean. The buildings are taken care of well. I, I have no real low-hanging fruit to offer as a suggestion in this situation. Now, I'm not going to get into a ton of details about this farm specifically because I want to maintain the anonymity of this place and this farm. So I'm not going to get into specific building design and actual or anything that's really going to help anyone identify who I'm working with in this situation. But we can talk generalities about what I saw. We know the issues with the source. We talked about that last time. I got a few more details, but we're not going to get into that today. The goal eventually is to get to the source and hopefully help them improve and be better as well to hopefully provide a better product to this feedlot and make the source more successful, just help everyone in general. The cool thing I found out that I wasn't entirely aware of about the source is that this feedlot is the only feedlot that this source provides cattle to besides themselves. So that's cool because it allows for an easier relationship, a little more leverage from the feedlot side to say, hey, I'd really like to look at how you're doing things and I'd be willing to pay more if you do this. Those kind of things can come up much more easily when you're the only feedlot that this source provides to. So let's talk about some of the things that this farm is doing in terms of cattle flow. When we have cattle arrive, how are they treated? How are they moved around? When do they make moves from pens or combined groups? Those kinds of things. We're getting a decent amount of cattle in on a monthly basis. When they arrive, they're put into small groups, which is great because Holsteins do not do well in big groups usually, especially when they're stressed. So we, they're put in small groups. And then at a basically seven days on feed, seven to ten days on feed, the pens that were split, a gate is removed, and now they become a larger group from two smaller groups. Just trying to ease the transition into a bigger group by making some jumps from small to a little bit larger to a little bit larger. So they go from small groups to a little bit larger. Then at about 30 days on feed, they transfer to an even a little bit larger group. And then at 80 to 90 days on feed, they go into an even larger group. And that is the final pen size that the finishing barn can accommodate. So they're in a grower barn in a big group. And then when flow dictates, when new cattle come in and the space is needed, that group goes as one group and is one pen in the finishing barn. So when these cattle arrive, they're in the small groups. And in those small groups, they're fed pelleted feed and some hay, basically the same diet that they were on at the growing operation before they arrived at the feedlot. That's great. It's really great to have something familiar, make sure that those animals are not stressed as much as possible. These animals are not introduced to forages or any kind of fermented feed until they're 30 days on feed. And then it's gradually introduced so that they get used to it. Great thing to do as well. So I'm not worried about the nutrition side of things from the ration sense. Now, we all know there's a difference between what's on paper when it comes to nutrition and what is actually happening on the farm. And there's all sorts of different pieces of nutrition that have nothing to do with what's on paper. That includes bunk space, water space, mixing, delivery, timing of delivery, all of those things that matter to nutrition and make or break your ration and whether or not it's successful. And 
nutrition being the most important piece of health for these cattle, we have to pay attention to those things as well. So as we've talked on this program before, I make recommendations and I try to order them in a hierarchy of importance. And that importance is also influenced by how easy it is to get that thing done, how much cost there is up front, how much day-to-day labor and time it's going to take. All of those things have to come into the order of importance because there's limited time and there's limited money. We can't just fix everything at once. That's not how the world works. So I like to order things in order of importance. If there's something really low-hanging that I think is going to make a massive impact and it doesn't cost that much and it doesn't take much time, that's going to be number one because it's an easy fix that's going to make a difference right away and it doesn't take those valuable things of money and time to get it done. Examples of things that I've seen that fall in that category, not at this farm, but at other farms, we've got sometimes some issues with delivery where they're just not using the entire bunk. We're delivering in only 60 feet of the bunk when there's 90 available to that pen. And if bunk space is short and the only fix you need to make is to feed that same amount of feed over the entire length of the bunk rather than just a section of it, And in that case, we're not adding time or money to the process. We're just asking you to use the entire bunk, which is already there. So you don't have to create new bunk. You don't have to make more of anything. You're not adding time or money to the system, but it's going to have a big effect. That's an example of a change or recommendation I'm going to make that's going to be prioritized and be number one because it doesn't require too much more input to the system And we get a big impact, even if I think there's a bigger problem on that farm, it might be the number one recommendation because it doesn't require time or money to make it happen. And it's still going to have a big impact. So all that in mind, we've got our list of recommendations in order of importance, thinking about time and money being a piece of that equation and that we cannot work on everything all at once. We need to pick things that we can work on and work towards a goal of becoming better as a whole, knowing that we can't do everything all at once. So number one, we've talked about it a little bit. Number one is to collaborate with the source operation to optimize and provide a bulletproof feeder. That's number one. It's gonna take time and effort to communicate and figure those things out, but the impact is gigantic. And fortunately, this feedlot is also willing to pay more for a better product. So we've taken some of the margin and cost issues out of the equation when we talk to the grower because the feedlot's willing to cover extra cost associated with potentially more management or labor or product on the grower side. Now we're not going to get into it more than that today, even though I think Going to this growing operation, we might be able to save them time and money based on what they're doing currently and make the whole system better. The point is there's a good relationship there that can be built upon that could provide a excellent product in the end to this feedlot, and that's going to have a big impact on their success. One of the other things that we looked at on this lot is that there are periods of stress. We have high-risk calves coming into this feedlot They're in small groups. That's as low stress as they're going to get. They're well cared for. But when we look at 
the system, there's no way to not have stress. We can just make it as low as possible. One of the ways we can reduce stress is providing extra water. Competition around the water is a big deal. And water drives dry matter intake. And dry matter intake means a healthy rumen in most cases. And a healthy rumen means healthy cows. So water becomes a key ingredient to this whole mix in reducing stress and making that animal more resilient. And adding water to a pen, especially when it's not freezing temperatures out, is a relatively simple thing to do, especially if it's for short periods when you know there's already stress. I'm not saying that we have to add more water to the pen all the time, whether that's in the form of a stock tank that you have to constantly fill up, which I know is a pain and does add time to your day, or in actually putting more waterers in that pen, which is a huge expense. But if we do it for short periods where we're adding additional water in times where it's hot, in times where it's cold, in known pen moves, in known diet changes, adding more water in those situations is a great way to reduce stress in those animals and make sure that you give them a little more resiliency when they're challenged by that stress. The other piece that gets missed a lot of times when we talk about stress and water is when we work cattle. When we're asking their immune system to respond to a vaccine or we've just sent them through the chute, which is stressful regardless of how good you are with low stress handling, it's still a stressful event for those cattle. Extra water is a great, great way to make sure we reduce stress as much as possible when those animals return to their pen. So number one recommendation in this system is to add some water or extra water in some way, stock tank, however you do it, during times of stress. Pretty easy fix, adds a little bit of time, a little bit of money potentially, but big impact, huge benefit, big return on investment. No one has ever been mad about adding more water to a pen. On this farm, the second recommendation that I found was that we looked at bunk space and we measured it based on what they had available in the different sections of the operation. So we have the starting pens that start small, then the gate is removed in between and they go to bigger pens. We know the bunk space there. We know at the second move where they go to a slightly bigger group, we know the bunk space there. And then when they go to their final group size, the big group, we know the bunk space there. In general, calves are going off feed and they're starting to go downhill at 30 days on feed. That is about the same time or slightly after we see a move to the medium-sized group. So we go from small groups to then a little bigger, and then we move at a 21 to 30 days on feed. We move to the second biggest group, and that's where we start to see problems. That happens to correlate very nicely with a drop in bunk space per head. So in the starting pens, we're seeing 12 to 16 inches per head, which is still less than I'd love to see, but at least it meets my minimum requirement of 12 inches. I'd love to see 18 inches if possible. When we move from that starting pen at anywhere between 21 and 30 days on feed, we move to a group that's slightly bigger, and that group only has 8 to 8.5 inches per head. And that is well below what I want to see, especially in young animals in a feedlot. It's just not enough space to make sure that everyone can eat at the same time. And that 
that causes lots of problems and it creates a group that's no longer uniform in body condition. And then you have trouble making a call on the bunk and making decisions for the whole group because you've got animals that are in there and they're eating perfect and doing well. And there's animals that are actually you're ahead of them because of the bunk space issue. So when you make a change for the whole group, you've got some animals in the group that are fine with that. You've got some animals in the group where you're actually probably behind them still. And you've got animals where you're way too far ahead of them. As a group, you can see the trend of the pen, but individuals in that group or there's going to be a proportion of that group where you are making a decision that does not apply to them. We want a uniform group. And that is the best way to make decisions and to manage the bunk correctly and have it apply to everyone in the pen. The only way in many cases to get that done is to have enough bunk space where we've eliminated competition at the bunk and we can create that uniform group by allowing everyone to eat at the same time. Unfortunately, there's many cases where bunk space tends to correct itself. If we don't have enough bunk space, the animals will fall off. They will get sick. Some of them will die until bunk space is at the level that we suggest. Minimum of 12 inches, ideally 18 inches per head. I would argue that more is better. You know, when we look at the cow side and we're looking at a mature cow, we're looking at a minimum of two feet or 24 inches per head. And in the dairy cow, we're looking at even more, especially on the fresh side when we're looking at minimum of 30 inches, potentially even 36. So more tends to be better. And unfortunately, bunk space will fix itself. So what do we do about bunk space? Well, there's two ways to make more bunk. You have less animals with the same amount of bunk, or you actually add bunk to a pen and make more bunk space and maintain the same number of animals. That is situationally dependent for each farm. Cash flow is huge on that where we're looking at, well, we can't decrease animal numbers a lot. So then we get creative with other spaces that we can use. Uh, where are there pens where we can utilize that pen or make more bunk space in a creative way that doesn't add a bunch of time or labor to the day-to-day -day process? If you've got a group of 90 head and bunk space is an issue, it's not viable to say, well, I want you to create more bunk, but now you can't get the TMR wagon over there to do it. And now you're carrying buckets or you're using the skid loader. That adds too much time and too much complexity to a day that's already full. We got to find ways to do it so that it's still simple. And if it adds a little time, okay. If it adds a little cost, okay. But if it gets over, there's a threshold and, it, and you'll find it on every farm, but there's a level where a recommendation just adds too much time and too much cost. It's going to change for each farmer, but we have to be reasonable and at least cognizant of that when we make a recommendation, knowing that it's going to be different for each farm and it's probably going to require some problem solving, maybe even another visit to kind of tease out how we could get it done and make it better for the animals and still make it doable for the farmer. So that is recommendation number three. First was collaborate with your source, make that relationship stronger, talk about improvements to the source operation, add water in times of stress, increase bunk space so that everyone can eat and you can create a uniform group where a nutrition decision is targeted at the whole group, not just at a subsection. 
After that, we're talking about streamlining vaccine protocols to reduce what I consider unneeded vaccines, improve protection, and then reduce stress overall. Vaccines are important. Not all vaccines in protocols are necessary. There's management fixes that make them obsolete, or they don't have enough data in my mind to be there at all. I'm not going to get into the details today of what I saw with this vaccine protocol. There's some controversial topics there. I'm happy to discuss them on another episode where we look at individual vaccines that I saw in this protocol that I don't think need to be there. To justify some of my thoughts, we'd have to get into the weeds and into the research to do it. We don't have time for that today. In general, I'm looking to take out anything I don't think is necessary and ways that we can reduce trips through the chute and ways that we can reduce stress because vaccines and trips through the chute are not benign. We're asking the immune system to do something which takes energy, energy that cannot be spent on something else like growth. These things add stress and we need to know that when we do them. We're, they're not benign processes most of the time. We're asking the animal to invest in this thing that we're doing in the form of energy for the immune system in dealing with the stress of being handled. In general, I'm looking to cover for the major viruses on the respiratory side. So that's our standard five-way modified live. After that, I need black leg protection, which oftentimes if we're talking about black leg and we give the right vaccine also gives us our C and D or our overeating disease protection when we're talking about Clostridium perfringens. After that, everything I add is 100% extra, in my opinion, and needs to address a documented issue. And the vaccine has to have enough data behind it to tell me that it works effectively and it's worth the cost that I'm spending on the vaccine itself and it's worth the stress I'm adding to that animal in order to receive the protection from that vaccine. So you can see how we could get into the weeds when we talk about vaccines and what has data behind it, what doesn't, does it fit in this system, does it fit with what's happening at the grower, and is it necessary based on the things they're already doing. Lots to talk about there, not going to get into it today. Email me if you have questions. I'm happy to discuss this on a one-on-one -on -one basis, especially if your local veterinarian wants to be involved. I'm happy to have that discussion, look at protocols, as long as we include your local veterinarian in that discussion because they know your system better than I do. Last thing for this farm, and it doesn't fall in the same category as the rest. The rest of the recommendations were focused on preventing illness, trying to get ahead of the break. The fact is, breaks are going to happen. We're going to have BRD on a feedlot. It's unavoidable. So what do we do when it happens? Having identified set treatment protocols is important. There's no way to know if what we're doing is working if we don't write it down, have good records, and have a consistent plan for what we're going to do when we find sick animals. I can't tell if it's working. I can't tell if we're doing the right thing. We can't keep track of which drug is better. Can we switch to a less expensive drug or can we not? We need to have that. It also is inefficient if we don't have a set plan to give, let's say, a macrolide and then follow that up with another macrolide after it didn't work the first time. So we got to switch drug classes when we're treating. We've got to look at post-treatment intervals, post-metaphylactic intervals, which is another thing we've covered on this show. 
there's lots of stuff to consider when we make a treatment protocol, and that has to be done with your veterinarian so that we can evaluate if it's working or not. So my recommendation in this case is that we need to have a set treatment protocol. It needs to be written down. We need to record those treatments. Then we can evaluate if things are working. That can be tailored to each farm and each problem. If we have necropsy data like we do in this farm, I also have information about which drugs may or may not work based on resistance testing done at the lab. The other thing that does is it helps us optimize withdrawal periods. You know, if we're going to think about getting rid of animals if they don't respond to a second treatment or a third treatment, but we have a protocol that makes us, after the third treatment, keep them for 60 days, that's not super helpful. So we can tailor the protocol to say, okay, well, on that third treatment, if they don't respond, we'd like to realize them and get rid of them early. Well, then we can use a product that has a short withdrawal period in case they don't respond. Then I'm not stuck with that animal if they don't respond to the treatment for an extended period of time. So that basically covers my recommendations to this farm without getting into the weeds and going through each individual point and each individual vaccine, all those things. I'm really hoping that the next step in this process is that I get to work with this growing operation and their veterinarian and see if we can optimize their system to make them better and provide a better product to this feedlot. I think that would help everyone. And this feedlot's willing to pay more if that's the case, if they can have a more bulletproof feeder provided to them, they're willing to pay more for it. That helps everybody. I will certainly let you know if I get that opportunity. I would love and be super excited if this all came full circle and I got to help everyone in the process because that rarely happens. It's very difficult to get that done, especially when the grower is in a different state. In this case, they're not that far away, so it's doable. With that, comments, questions, scathing rebuttals to this episode, please send them to the Moosroom at umn.edu. You can also call me and leave a voicemail. I'll get back to you. And we might feature you on the show with your voicemail if you're okay with that. Please say that you are okay with that in the voicemail if you have a question. That's at 612-624-3610. 612-624-3610. Check us out on Twitter at UMN Moosroom and at UMN Farm Safety. Check Bradley out on Instagram at Dairy. Look at our website extension umn.edu. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I will catch you next week. Mm-hmm.